job with Leslie, every bit of that service, wonderful. <clears throat> in December of 1988, an 8.2 level earthquake hit Armenia. <clears throat> Studies show that there were over 30,000 people killed in less than four minutes. There was a father in Armenia, and when the earthquake hit, he immediately went as quickly as he possibly could to the school where his son was. He came up to the school and he saw the rubble, he saw the debris, he saw the, the buildings that once stood and now they were laying as a pile of, of rubble. And he stood there and his heart was broken and he was in shock and he didn't know what to do. He could barely move as the emotions began to well up inside of him. But he says he remembered a promise that he had made to his son. A simple promise that he would tell his son over and over and over again. Son, I will always be there for you. He said he could not get that promise out of his mind. And so he, he looked at the, the pile of rubble and he tried to find the location where the boy's classroom was. And so he found what he believed to be the location and he began to work and he began to move these giant boulders out of the way. One by one by one he would lift them up and he would throw them out of the way and he would come back for another. As time passed, more parents came and they were brokenhearted and they were weeping and they were sobbing and they were wailing. And then they came to the man and said, there's no hope. There's no hope. You must stop. You must accept it for what it is. But the man would not stop. He kept moving boulder after boulder. And then the law enforcement came and they tried to physically pull him away from the debris. But he would fight against them and go back and he would move boulder after boulder. It says that he went for 10 hours. Then he kept going. 12 hours he kept going. 15 hours, he kept going. 20 hours straight, and he kept going. 24 hours, and he would not stop. 30 hours, and he's given all that he's got. His hands are bruised, and there's blood, and his energy is running out, but he will not quit. 35 hours, and he continues in this love that a father has. 36 hours, 37 hours, and finally on the 38th hour, the story says he, he moved this gigantic boulder and he heard, Dad. And he, he threw the rock and he, he got down as low as he could and he said, Armando, Armando, and, and he heard, Dad. And so he began to move as fast as he could, trying to break way, and as he moved it, he heard that word get louder and louder, Dad, Dad. Until finally he moved a stone and he could pierce through. There was this cavity. And his son Armando and 13 other classmates were safe in this cavity. And Armando looked back and he said, Dad, I told them that if you were alive, you would come for me. Dad, I told them that if you were alive, you would not stop until you rescued me and that we would be safe. And Dad, you made it. I love the story. It's a true story, but it shows the love of a father. The love of a father. I believe there is no love as pure 
and as genuine and as unconditional as the love of a parent to a child. As we open to Luke 15, the theme is the great love that God has for his children. The entire chapter is built around the reality of the greatness of the love that God has for his children. It is a beautiful text that we're going to look at this morning. It is one of the most well-known pieces of scripture in the Bible because it is such a powerful text. But it could be that because we are so familiar with the text, we miss some of the theological implications. And so I want to show you some things this morning that maybe you know, maybe you've missed in your study, but I believe that God will speak and stir in your heart about his great love. Chapter 15, verse 1, and it begins and it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners, and they're coming and they are listening to Jesus. Who are they? They are the outcast. They are the scum. They are the ones at the very bottom of this, of this social ladder, if you will. On one hand, you have the tax collectors, and they are the lowest people socially and religiously in the life of Israel. They were disassociated from society. They were put out of their families. They were considered to be outside the purpose and the will of God, and they were seen as traitors from the nation of Israel. And then you have sinners. Now, when it's talking about sinners, it's talking about criminals, and it's talking about prostitutes. We're talking about the most despised group of people, and what are they doing? They are coming to Jesus, and they are listening to him as he speaks. Jesus is teaching, he is preaching, he is proclaiming good news, and it is the tax collectors and the sinners who are drawing near, and they're listening attentively to the words that Jesus speaks. And you can imagine in the love of Jesus, he goes to these tax collectors and he puts his arm around them. He, he lets them know that he loves them, that he cares about them, that they have value, that they have purpose. But then there's a contrast in verse 2. Verse 2 it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Now, on this hand, now you have the self-appointed elite. They are the religious leaders of Israel. They are self-righteous, and they believe that you earn your way to God. You earn your salvation by being moral on the outside and performing these religious ceremonies. And they are far too religious, and they are far too holy to associate with these types of sinners. And as they watch Jesus and they see that he is building relationships with tax collectors and sinners, they come to one conclusion. He must be satanic because he is hanging out with the people of Satan. He is teaching. He is having meals with these people that we would never associate with in our life. And so he must not be from God. And so that's the context that Jesus tells three specific parables. 
And in the attempt in these three parables, he is wishing to show these religious leaders for what they really are. They are distant from God. They are separated from the purpose of God. They have alienated their very selves from Jesus Christ. And so in verse 3 through 7, there's the parable of the lost sheep. I'll just summarize it for you. It says, a man has a hundred sheep, and he finds that one is missing. Will he not leave the 99 and go find that one missing sheep? And when he finds it, will he not throw it upon his shoulder and bring it back home? And when he comes home, will he not call his friends and his neighbors and begin to celebrate because the sheep was lost, but now it's found? And look at verse 7, and you see the point of the chapter. Verse 7, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's a party. There is joy because one sinner repents. And then there's the parable of the lost coin. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins, and she's looking one day in her purse, and she finds that one is missing. Will she not begin to go through the entire house, sweeping up under the rug and looking under the couch, until she finds that one missing coin? And when she finds it, will she not call her, her buddies on the phone? Say, come on over and celebrate because the coin was lost, but now it is found. In verse 10 it says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now let's take a segue for just a moment. What we see here is we see our purpose we see our mission, we see our marching orders. There is joy in the presence of God when one sinner comes to salvation. The reason that we exist as a church, the reason that we wake up every morning is to see someone who is lost come to find Jesus as their personal Savior. And when that happens, the point of this chapter is there is joy in the presence of God. There is rejoicing. There is celebration. And so that's what we as a church at Woodland Hills Baptist Church, we must get behind that. The reason that we carry out our ministries, the reason that we have programs is so that people will come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is not the purpose of something that we're doing, then we ought to kill that ministry. We ought to kill that program because we have a large mission in front of us. There is joy in the presence of God over one sinner who repents. And that leads us to the parable of the prodigal son. If you like taking notes in your bulletin, you'll find an outline. I encourage you to take notes with us. The first thing I want you to see is the rebellion, the rebellion, and we start with a rebellious request. It says in verse 11, it says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Younger son goes to his father, and he asked for his portion of the inheritance. Now, we understand even in our culture that this is disrespectful. This is selfish on every level. You get the estate when the father dies. And so the young man basically goes to his father 
And he says, Father, I wish that you were dead, but you are in the way, and I am tired of waiting upon you to die. I want what's mine, and I want it now because I'm tired of you. I'm tired. You are an obstacle in my life, and you are an unwelcome point of accountability. He doesn't want a relationship with the Father. He doesn't want the responsibility of the Father. He wants freedom. He wants independence. He wants his money, and he wants it now. And so he goes to his Father And he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Give it to me and give it to me now. I want the cash, I want the goods, and I want the property. Now, we understand that's disrespectful. But we have to know on a deeper level that in the first century world, they lived on what I'll call this paradigm between shame and honor. And especially a man would do everything possible to protect his honor. And so this was a very shameful request when his son comes up to him and begins to ask for his share of the inheritance. The man desires the blessings of the father, but he does not want any of the responsibilities. And the listeners would expect one thing. They would expect the father to lift his hand And to slap that boy across the face as hard as he could. Protect your honor. Protect your dignity. Put this young man in his place. But the Bible says that he divided his property between them. The father did exactly what the young man requested. You would think maybe for a good son, maybe for a good purpose, but this son is going to go out and live a life of rebellion. Why does the father allow the son to do this? Can I just remind you that God will allow us in our sin to leave his presence. God will allow us to run away from him. It says in Romans 1, it talks about those who know God, those who don't honor him, who became futile in their thinking. They exchanged the glory of God for images of mortal man. And do you know what God did? It says in verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Listen, if you want no relationship with God, you can have that. If you want to take God and say, God, I don't want you in my life, then you can have that. That is the desire of sin. Sin is rebellion against God. And God will give you the freedom to choose your sin. He'll give you the freedom to take your sin as far in any direction as you choose to take it. Sin is rebellion against God. It is a rebellion against the one who could give you all that you need and life. It is rebellion against the one who has all the riches you could ever desire. You want no relationship with the one who could give a future as well as a present. And so there is this rebellious request. But we also see there's a rebellious route. Look at verse 13. It says, and not many days later, 
The younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. You'll notice it says not many days later. In other words, the son is moving quickly. He doesn't want to sit on the goods. He does not want to sit on the wealth. He wants to move, and he wants to leave as quickly as he possibly can. And so how do you do that? How do you take an estate that has been gathering for generations? We're talking servants, and we're talking land, and we're talking livestock. How do you take all of this wealth and turn it into cash quickly? How do you liquefy these assets? You know how you do it? You take a lesser value for the assets. You think of it today. If you need money, what do you do? You have a garage sale. And you sell things for less than they're worth. You take goods to the pawn shop and you get pennies on the dollar for what something is worth. And so this man is such, in such a hurry. He's in such a hurry to get away from the accountability and the restraint and the scrutiny of the father. He, he puts his future on the line for the present and he wants to just leave as quickly as he can. He wants to live for himself. And so he goes on a reckless route, which leads to a rebellious recklessness. Look at verse 13 and 14. It says, there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Now the Bible says he takes this enormous amount of money, and he goes and he begins to live recklessly. In other words, he is wasting it. He is squandering the wealth. He is squandering the riches. In verse 30, his older brother says that he even brought, bought prostitutes. And so he is totally living this life of sinful rebelliousness, doing exactly what he wants to do with no regard for anyone else. Sin looks for fulfillment outside and away from God, but listen to me, it never finds it. It leaves the sinner exhausted, empty, hungry, and hopeless. This is a man who is living in open sin. And you know who he is in the story? He's those tax collectors. And he's those sinners that we saw in verse 1. So the man's living in the moment. And then he runs out of money and something happens. The Bible says that a famine occurred in the land. Now, in an agricultural society, famine means that there is going to be death and there is going to be chaos. And so the man finds himself, the young man, in these difficult times, and he's got no money. He's got nothing. And so verse 5, it says, So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He went and he attached himself. The, the Greek word is kaleo. It means that he glued himself to this landowner. He would not leave him. And he was begging for a job. I am hungry. I need some money. Please, please give me a job. I'll do anything in the world. And finally, the landowner sent him to the pigs. He sent him to the pigs and said, I want you to go out and I want you to feed the pigs every day. Now, we don't have to know a lot to realize that Jews do not like pigs, right? 
The Jews find the pigs unclean. This is a job that no Jewish boy would choose to do. But he goes out, and look at verse 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Here's what the young man is looking at in his life. I have really blown it. Do you ever feel that way? I have really messed up. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix it myself. I'm going to fix it on my own. So I'm going to go and I'm going to find a job and I'm going to work and I'm going to provide for myself and I'm going to get out of this situation. And so he walks to the pig field and he's got his slop with him. And he's watching these unclean pigs, these unclean animals. And the Bible says he's feeding them their slop. And as he watches the pigs come up, inside of him what he desires is to jump down in that trough and to push the pigs away and begin to eat that slop. He's thinking about it. He is considering this as a good option. He has reached this point of desperation to where his his stomach is so hungry He needs food so badly. And he is at this point that he has never felt like this before in his life. He has reached this point of total rock bottom. There's no friends. There's no relationship. There's no joy. There is nothing for him in this life. He's trying to do it on his own. He's trying to find his way back up this ladder, but it's not working. And he is starving to death as he watches these, feet, these pigs begin to eat. Folks, what you see in these verses is the picture of a life of sin. A life that says, God, I don't want you in my life. Isaiah says your iniquity, your sin has separated you from God. And so you say, God, I want to be as far away from you as I can be. I don't want your rules. I don't want your restrictions. I don't want your accountability. I want your blessings. And I want to take those blessings and I want to live life for me. Because it's my life and I want to do what I want to do. But sin never leads to a life of victory. It doesn't. You cannot find fulfillment in a life that is lived for yourself. And so this young man finds himself at the lowest point he's ever been in his life. And can I just say this? This is exactly where this young man needed to find himself. Because it is when he hits rock bottom that he begins to look up. As people, as parents, we cannot bail our children out every time they find themselves in a difficult situation. If we never let our loved ones hit rock bottom, it may be that they never look up. The best thing in the life of this young man was to be looking at the slop in the trough and wishing to eat that slop. Because it says in verse 17, Now we get to the repentance, and we see the recognition. It says in verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I love it. It says, when he came to himself. It's a moment of recognition. You picturing it in your mind? He's watching the dirty, stinky pigs, and he's about to dive headfirst into it and begin to eat this slop. But then he has this, this moment, 
this aha moment, this moment when the light bulb goes off above his head, this moment that he begins to think, and he begins to think about his father. And do you see what he thinks about his father? He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough, but I am dying of hunger. I'm dying. You see, in this society, you would have these different levels. You would have landowners, and then you would have these tenant farmers, and they would lease land, and they would make money, and they would accumulate wealth. And then you had shop owners, and then you had these, these craftsmen, and they had this kind of skilled labor. And then below that, you had these, these servants, and they would live in the house. They would live with the family, almost a part of the family. And at the very bottom of it all, you had these, these hired men, these hired servants, and they are day workers. They would get hired by the day. And it says in the Old Testament that you would pay them every day because they need the money for that day just to live. And so on this, this pole, they're at the very bottom. They're, they're below the servants. They're below everyone else. And he's thinking back to his father. He's thinking to the goodness of his father. And he says, my father even takes care of the hired servants. My father even gives to the least of these more than they need. My father is good. My father is, is gracious. My father is merciful. My father is generous. And he begins to realize that the goodness of his father. And as he begins to, to think about it, then he leads to a, a response. A response, verse 18, he says, this is what I will do. I will arise and I will go to my father. He said, I'm going to trust the mercy of my father. I'm going to trust the goodness of my father. I'm going to trust the compassion of my father. I'm in this terrible spot. I'm in this terrible condition. And my father, he's a good man. He's a gracious man. So I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to respond. And then we see a rehearsal. Look at verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You'll notice in this verse, he talks about my father. There's a personal note to it. At the beginning, he just says, Father, Father, give me my share of the estate. But now he realizes how good the father is, and so he speaks of my father. And you'll notice that he takes full responsibility. He says, I have sinned. It means I have sinned into the heavens. My sin is so great. My sin is so high. My sin is so tall. I have done so much wrong in my life. There's this, this attitude of this genuine repentance. And you'll see that his plan is this. I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm not going to ask for privilege and I'm not going to ask for my rights because I have forfeited those already. He can make no claim. He doesn't ask to be in the Father's house. He doesn't ask to be a family member. And he doesn't ask to be a servant in the house. He says, here's my plan. I'm going to go and I'm going to work as the man on the very bottom. And I'm going to work for years and years and decades and decades. His plan is to to find this job for his father, making minimum wage until he can pay back the debt. 
In his mind, this is the only reality. I have this debt, and I must pay it back. And so I must work, and I must push, and I must labor. And maybe one day I can do enough to earn my spot back into the family. And there's a lot of folks that have that same belief system. Look at your life, and you say, I have sinned. And my sin is as high as the heavens. Nobody in here knows the sin in my life. It is so great. How could I ever earn my spot before God? Here's what I'll do. I will work it off. And so I will come to church every Sunday. And I will give money every week. And I'll drive a bus. And I'll sing in the choir. And I will be a good person in life. I will put all this energy into it. I will output all of this effort, and maybe one day I'll be good enough to earn my spot into the presence of God. And so let me just work. Let me just do my best. Let me, let me earn my position before God. In verse 20 it says, And he got up and he came toward his father. Now we don't know how far the journey is, But it had to be a good journey because his whole ambition was to leave his father. And so can you imagine as he's walking back, you ever do this? You've got a tough task ahead of you. And so as you're going to the task, you're replaying it over and over in your mind. I think as he's walking down this roadway, he's thinking, this may not turn out very good. My father may just say, I want nothing to do with you, you dirty, rotten, prodigal son. That could happen. And he's walking, and he's replaying it over and over in his mind. This is what I'm going to say. He's got it all mapped out. It's all lined up. I'm going to say, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me be just a hired servant in your house. And every step, he's replaying the picture in his mind. And then we come to the reunion. The reunion and the reconciliation. Verse 20, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Oh, I love that. Don't you love that? While he was still a long way off. His father saw him in the distance. He felt compassion. He ran. He embraced him, and he kissed him. Do you know what it shows us? It shows us that the father was watching for the son. I I just picture this front porch, and every day the father goes out, and he's watching from sun up to sundown. Oh, I miss my, my son so much. I want my son to return so badly. And so he's watching, and then one day he looks in the distance, and he sees this this small figure, and it's coming closer, and he's looking intently. Could this be my son? Could this be my boy? And he's trying to figure it out. Is this my son? And the, the text says when he saw it was his son, it says he ran. He ran. I may not do much for you, but in this culture... Men were built on dignity. They did not run. A man would never run. Men wore these long robes, and they would never show their legs because it was undignified to show your legs. 
And so when it says he ran, it's the same word as other places in the Bible talking about a sprint or a race. And so what it means is this father saw his son and he lifted up his robe over his knees and he sprinted as hard as he could because he wanted to get to his son immediately. And so the picture is so beautiful. He's running from his home. He's running from his estate and he's going as quickly as he can to get to his son. But there's another reason he ran. He ran because the son would have to come through the town. And if the son came in the town, he would be met with great condemnation. There would be ridicule. People would yell and they would taunt him. You cannot believe you did this. And they would begin this condemnation. And so the father runs so that the son will not experience the condemnation. And so the text says the father runs and he embraces the son. He just puts him in his arms. Can you imagine as a parent, he goes to his son, he wraps his arms around him, and he, he kisses him. In, in the original language, it's plural. It means that he's kissing him over and over and over and over. This picture of love. And the text continues. And you see the redemption. Look at verse 21. It says, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then it stops. Do you notice that? But there was more. When you go back to verse 19, there was more. Do you remember? The plan was this. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. But you'll notice when he's face-to-face -face with the Father, he leaves that out. Now, he had a plan. Why does he leave that out? Because there's no need for it. He is experiencing the grace of the Father. There is no hard work. There is no working the way back into the family. Do you know what he does? He simply repents. That's all he says. Father, I have sinned, and my sins are great. I am not worthy to be a part of this family. And in that moment, he entrusts himself to the mercy of God. He doesn't make a demand. He doesn't even make a request. He just states the facts. Father, I have, I have messed up, and I have messed up in a big way as his father is holding on to him. Now look at the restoration, verse 22. <clears throat> it says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You'll notice he said bring the robe. <clears throat> Most families, only the father would have a robe. And they would wear it for these grandiose occasions. And so he says get my robe and put it on my son. Then he said, put the, the ring on his finger. The ring was the, the seal of authority. Oftentimes it would have this stamp feature to it, and you would sign a document and you would stamp the family seal. And it was a way of showing that the son has authority. He said, put shoes on his feet. Slaves and servants would go barefoot. His son was not going to go barefoot. He was going to have shoes on his feet. You know what the father is saying? This is my son. This is my son. He's not going to work it off. This is my son, and he is 
home and bring the fattened calf. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate because my son was dead, but now he's alive. Catch this. Many theologians believe that when the son left, the family would have had a funeral service. They would have come together and and talked about how the son is now dead because of his rebellion. And so he's looking at it, and he's saying, my son was dead, but now he is alive. Let us celebrate. Bring the calf. Bring the neighbors. Let's rejoice in this. And do you know what it goes back to, verse 7, where he says, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so he's given this picture. Here is the joy. Here is the point of it. My son was dead, but now he is alive, and they begin to celebrate. You say, well, how does this apply in my life? It could be that you resonate with this lost son. You resonate with him. You, you experience that. Maybe you have lived a life of rebellion. Maybe you have gone through a season of of just running away from God. And in your heart, you struggle with the reality that God could love you. How could God love me after all the terrible things that I've done? Can't you see it in the picture? Can't you see the father watching for his child to return? And when the child decides to return, he runs and he embraces and he kisses and says, my child has come home. It could be that for you, that's what you need to do this morning, is that you need to return. You need to come home to the Father. You need this relationship. Maybe you had religion in the past, but you had no true relationship. The son was in the home. He was around the Father, but he did not know the Father. He did not have a relationship with the Father until this experience. And so maybe what you need is salvation. But maybe you're here and you know that you're saved, and what you need is to contribute to the party. Contribute to the celebration. You need to bring people into the presence of God. You need to push people into a closer relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to make a contribution to the party. The Bible says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What kind of eternal impact, what kind of eternal difference are you making in your life? Let me ask you to close your eyes and bow your head. And I wonder how the Lord has challenged you this morning through his word. I wonder if you relate to this lost son. See, it could be that the Lord is calling you to salvation. And if so, I'm gonna gonna plead with you. Answer the calling of God. Answer the stirring. If you feel that that calling upon your heart and you can't explain it, you, you can't put words to it, but you feel the Holy Spirit and it's drawing you to say that you need to be saved. I want to challenge you to come to the front and speak to one of us. And let us talk with you. It could be that you're, you're here and you're not telling anyone about Jesus. You have lost your focus. You've lost your, your vision in life. 
You're so busy living for yourself and living for the moment that you're not telling anyone about the kingdom of God. You're not bringing on the party in heaven. I love the picture of the angels rejoicing in the presence of God because another one was lost, another one was dead, but now they have come to life. Oh, I'd love to be a part of that party this morning. I'd love to see us bringing folks in so that the party will continue and continue and continue. So my prayer is, whatever the Lord is leading you, that you'll be obedient. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together, God. Lord, I pray that whichever way that you're stirring us, God, that we will respond, we'll respond in obedience. Lord, if you're calling one to salvation, Lord, that there will be obedience. Lord, if you're calling us to be evangelistic, to live a life on point, to live life with vision, I pray that we will be a people who wake up every day with a vision for your kingdom. So, Lord, may your will be done. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Please stand with us as we sing.